computer. All right, we're back after a brief, brief hiatus with conversations with Dave and Andy. That's Dave over there. I'm Andy over here. <laughs> so today we are going to just, a lot of the confusion, a lot of the misspeaking and yelling and back and forth has to do with confusion of terms. So today we're going to try to define or examine some of these terms and see if we can come to some common ground on them. So, Mr. David, what term would you like to start with? Well, um, we could start with um, let's start with phonemic awareness. Okay. So, give me a cut on what you think phonemic awareness means. Well, what do you think phonemic awareness means? For me, I make a, a what I think is a very important distinction between the kind of attention that the brain is, the, the kind of attention that we are giving to differentiating the sound components in the oral language stream. So when you say your name, or I say my name, or we say chair behind you, or desk behind you, or whatever it is, right? There's all kinds of little sound parts in that that our brain's paying attention to that make the difference between Andrew and David, between bat and cat, and between dad and bad, and between ball and call, right? So for example, between ball and call, there's a very small little window, very small little slice in the sound stream that makes the difference between ball and call, the B and the C in the beginning of sound. So that difference in sound that makes a difference in recognizing a word and, the, and all that goes with it is phonemic awareness. But the kind of phonemic awareness that's required in order for us to learn to speak and listen to a language like we're doing now, and the kind of phonemic awareness that's associated with reading are two different things. The phonemic awareness associated with reading has to do with making distinctions in sound that correspond or map to the print, to the alphabet, in a way that we don't have to make when we're speaking and listening. So I always make a difference between natural phonemic awareness and artificial phonemic awareness. Phoneme is sound. Awareness is consciousness of. So phonemic awareness is consciousness of sounds within words. Now, I don't think you have to be aware of any mapping in your brain. Uh, you just need to know the basics of sounds. Phonemic awareness activity is manipulating sounds within words, sounds and parts of words. Now, everyone believes that phonemic awareness should be part of early reading instruction, emergent, preschool, kindergarten, maybe first grade. The research on this is correlational, not causal. So there should not be too much emphasis on phonemic awareness activities. A lot of things such as rhyming, a lot of incidental difference between this word and that word. It's a listening activity. And technically, there should not be any alphabet involved in it if it's a pure phonemic awareness. There's phonics-phonemic hybrid. The, the research is correlational. They found that students with high scores on phonemic awareness scored better in reading achievement a couple of years down the line. But phonemic awareness is a result of being exposed to books, being exposed to language and having parents talk with you. So that's why it's correlational, not causal. Was that more than you wanted? I don't know. I don't know about exposed to books, except in the insofar as somebody's reading to you, you're getting more language exposure and getting more illiterate language exposure, which might be more exercising of phonemic differentiations. But yeah, I mean, I yeah, exposed yeah. to so, books means being read to at a young okay. age. Uh, where we differ is the idea of mapping in your head to words. You know, I think that's a great theory. I don't think it could be a basic theory. I don't think it has application in real life. Because in our head, when we hear the word cat, we do not associate it with short A words or words that start with C. We associate Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, my pushback on that wasn't so much to say that I'm an advocate of, I, I make a distinction between the phonemic awareness that's discussed in reading circles 
which I think is through the lens of reading and phonemic awareness that uh, an illiterate person or a person never exposed to literacy still has a certain level of phonemic awareness that's implicit in their ability to recognize words. So uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm making a distinction and have made a distinction for decades in that point, that there's a difference between what kind of attention to sound differences are involved in oral language processing and what kind of a difference to sound differences are involved in uh, reading. That's all. Now, from a reading instruction point of view, one misuse of phonemic awareness activities is in students reading in grades three and above. There was a high school uh, reading class, special ed classroom, severely struggling readers, and the high school teacher was doing phonemic awareness activities. That is inappropriate at that age. It, they generally should cease when students are reading at the first grade level. Yeah, I mean, uh, all of those are generalizations, right, about where somebody is developmentally on the trajectory towards becoming proficient with language and reading. So they're, you know, they're all arbitrary. I think they're, 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 the like the Hart Risley study would show that kids that are uh, growing up in a really complexly rich language environment have got the kind of verbal musculature and exercise in making differentiations in the soundscape that gives them advantages when they take off in reading and kids that don't have greater trouble because their kind of language infrastructure isn't as well developed. But, you know, wh whether that's first grade or third grade or whatever, that's, um, that's, that's educational structural convenience stuff, not necessarily a comment on somebody developmentally. I would say it's applied research, meaning that, and that's what our good friend, Mr. Dr. Shanahan, calls the type of research that you do with actual students in a learning situation. What is effective and impactful? Uh, students reading above the first grade level, there's no study showing that phonemic awareness is effective in enhancing their reading. Yeah, again, inside an educational institutional structure. I mean, kids that are going through homeschool, kids that have got, that are off the developmental track for some other way. I mean, you're saying there's a difference between kind of where you put the microscope and trying to observe this stuff. Ultimately, somebody that was really slow in, in a language development might benefit from phonemic awareness exercises later in their calendar, in their age progression than others, um, depending upon their personal history, right? So there's a difference between what's convenient and effective in kind of crop yield analysis in an educational setting and what's right or appropriate developmentally, psycho, not psychologically to uh, a, a, any one particular individual. Right. I don't, but I don't think that's a big thing for us to kick around. I mean, all right, I, yeah, let, let's go on it because we, we, we are existing in a school structure. So I am talking about school structure and reading instruction. All right. What's another word that you want to look at? Well, no, you pick one. Okay. How about, oh, this, I was going to go reading. Would that get us too far off defining? No, it's fine. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm game to do that. We've done that before. When, uh, and let's agree really not to go too far with this because we both go crazy. But reading is creating meaning with print. We use both a combination of letter clues and context clues and syntax and grammar clues, and even at the youngest age, picture clues. But if you're not creating meaning, technically you are not reading. And I know what you're going to say. You're going to make, well, go ahead and say it. Yeah, let me say it. Come on, I don't know, cut me off. Uh, <laughs> so so in, my, in my world, um, uh, reading is an artificially inseminated language experience. In other words, it's a virtual language experience, one that's not happening in the real external world between human beings. And it's a uh, production of the brain, this virtual internal experience, according to the instructions and information contained in a code, that is to say the writing system, the code that we're reading while we're reading. And so, um, it's an artificially inseminated language experience um, co constructed according to the information and instructions contained in a, in a human artifact, this writing system, this English orthography, or orthography of whatever kind. And my difference is that it's no more artificial than learning tennis or learning anything or learning to speak. 
Learning to speak is yeah. an artificial thing if you want to take it to its furthest extreme. Uh, so we learned- Le learning, learning to read requires paying attention to and referencing the disambiguation of confusion to an external set of technologically invented uh, conventions, codes, and, and modes of interpretation that are not natural, they're human invented. Whereas um, the other things that you mentioned are live on the living learning edge, getting feedback from what you're doing as a basis for tuning in. So the reference for learning is different. And again, disambiguation. Uh, you know, on a theoretical level, I guess I could understand where you're coming there from, but on a practical level, humans learn. Language is a human construct. Language is a human construct, just as reading is a human construct. So, no, no, I've, I've actually interviewed the person who wrote the numbers of people who have, are experts in the science of how language emerged in humanity. And the kind of tongue-in-cheek argument is, is that humans didn't invent language. Language invented humans in the sense that the kind of consciousness we are is a consciousness produced on the other side of becoming language users. So language is deeply fused with becoming human as we understand it today. It's not something that we invented in some abstract mechanical way like we did writing. Oh, totally I, different. I, I agree with you that language is what makes us human. It, it enables us to think. The ability to communicate is a natural thing. Language is a human invention. I don't care how many people write how many books. You know, language, they're all on the theoretical plane. I exist in the practical plane of classrooms and observing. Oh, right. I mean, go uh, cultural anthropologist or go neuroanthropologist and talk about the Fox gene that says 250,000 years or the anthropological evidence that says 100,000 years with respect to jaws and tongues and the articulatory physical structures involved in speaking language. Humans have existed for some 7 million years, depending upon your, you know, the particular yeah. anthropological studies that you're talking about. Humans have only been speaking for 250,000 to 100,000 years. So it's a relatively new phenomena. It's changed everything about what it means to be human. And it, is, it was an eco-evolution. In other words, today, a human that's born with half a brain will still learn to speak. It's got such evolutionary importance to us. Um, but it's not an invention in any way analogous to the invention of a writing system, which is 3,000, 3,500 years old. In the case of the English writing system, 500 years old. That is an entirely different kind of convoluted, intentional, structural technological invention than language. They can't be compared. You know, I disagree. I agree with you that they are different. They're not the same. Absolutely not. And I agree with you that our brains have evolved. Language is a tool of thought, as Vygotsky has said. Our brains have evolved and probably our jaws have evolved as a result of this. But language the, 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 is a human construct. We created language, language, and created us at the same time. So language created us as much as we created language. All right, let's not go down that rabbit hole, all right? Because we would spend 20 minutes and we bore everybody. So if it is okay with you, should we go to another go one? Go ahead. Sure. All right, you get to pick the one this term, time. Um, decoding. Oh, no, no. Word identification. Ah, great one. Go ahead. Go for it. No, no, I want you to go with this. This All is right. important to you. So, and if we pick the words, the other guy should start with the definition. Word identification is different than word recognition. Word identification is you see a word in print. It is in your lexicon, which is the dictionary in your head. You don't recognize it. You don't automatically know what it is. So you have to use a strategy. Hmm, what strategy should I use? I should use phonics, phonemic or uh, morphemic uh, analysis, semantics, or uh, analogy. Those are the four word identification strategies. 
And a strategy, word identification is a strategy. It's something you consciously apply. Through the use of specific and direct instruction in the four strategies, they become automatic, automaticized, so that you begin to recognize words automatically. Boom. Ping pong back to you. That's how I would define word identification. So let's slow and go back into that a little bit. You said it's in your lexicon. It's, it's in your lexicon. Yep. You identify it because it's in your lexicon. But you don't recognize it. Yep. So when you say that, you don't. Identification seems to suggest that that I've identified it. But if I don't recognize it, how can I identify? It's a confusing way of using those terms. I mean, it's not the way that identification or recognition are used outside of the specialty bubble that we're talking about. So when we talk about identif identifying something, it usually implies a recognition. You're suggesting there's an implicit capacity for recognition because it's in your lexicon, but you haven't recognized it. In the world of reading, to recognize a word is to perceive it and you automatically know what it is. So we're talking not about recognition and identification. We're talking about word recognition and word identification. Word recognition you perceive the word, you automatically know what it is, and you keep moving on. So how would you define word identification? I, I wouldn't. I don't know that I would use that term. I mean, even if it's implicit that, I mean, I understand there's a value in making a distinction between a word that I know, but I can't recognize it in print, right? There's that. And then there's a word that I recognize in print, right? So I, I, and there's a word that I haven't yet learned that I've recognized in print as a mode of learning it. So I've recognized that I've identified this word, I've recognized this word. And because of the context that's unflowing, I'm now, or flow, that I'm flowing through when I encounter it, I've now learned that word. So there's a, there's, so the cases are that I, know the word orally, it's in my oral vocabulary, I'm familiar with the word, but when I see it in print, I can't, it doesn't connect, I can't recognize it. You then can. there's the case where I recognize it and, and I know it, and there's another case where I recognize it in the sense that I can sound it out, and I know I've heard it before, but I don't know what it means. So there's all these different classes that could be put together there. I just don't see the, the word, the way that you've used word identification has implied a, um, it's it's created a, the notion of an implication that I would recognize it, but I haven't yet recognized it. So I don't know the value of the term that way. I don't get. Let's the let's go the back. The, this distinction is incredibly important when you're teaching reading. To recognize a word means to perceive it. And what do you do? What types of activities do you do to help children? recognize words automatically you use phonics instruction yeah yeah yeah. No, that, look that's that's a whole that's the big ball game there is how do you get to a word recognition of a word you don't recognize and i get the distinction between it's a word i could recognize because i know it and there's a word that i don't yet know that i'm working to learn as i recognize i get those distinctions i just don't get the word identification value that you're putting as I was about to explain, and yeah, knowing, a word, knowing a word, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with your use of that term, knowing the word. To recognize a word, the brain uses three interacting systems, interacting interdependently. They use them together. They use the phonological system. They use the syntactic system, grammar and word order. And they use the semantic system, which is meaning or context clues. These three are working together, both as we hear and as we see words in print. We have activities to develop that so it becomes automatic. Now, to know a word, yes, to know a word is to know the meaning of the word. I think that's where you're at. But there are words that are in our lexicon. If it's in our lexicon, that means we know what that word means, but we don't recognize it as we're reading. So we need to use some strategy. Now, often teachers say a student is reading, comes to a word, stop, 
We say, sound it out. But if they could do that, they wouldn't have stopped, would they? That's why we need to have four strategies that you consciously apply. As adults- You're bleeding now, okay. I mean, I, yep. I, yep. I, I, get, I get all that. My only thing was is that the, the instruction, I'm trying to get you to be more specific about what you think is the conceptual slash uh, instructional value of the distinction called word identification. Ah, because you teach these strategies specifically, you break them down. But, but that's, the strategies are all about recognition, not identification. The strategies are, you use an identification strategy to, to recognize the word. There is a difference. Word identification is a strategy you consciously apply. The difference between a skill and a strategy in the reading world. You know, the way that you originally started off, you talked about word identification being a word that that uh, I've identified. Again, I can't even identify it. If I don't recognize the word, then it, it's an unrecognized word. I don't get the value of, of saying that there's a distinction called word identification that's different from word recognition at the conceptual level of understanding the challenge of reading. The identification is the strategy you use to recognize the word. Sounding out right. the word is one strategy. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. All right. So I, I don't know. I don't know what we're having trouble. If we could rewind the tape and play the part where you just said what word identification was, um, that's the part by itself as, an, as if it's an isolated phenomena. There's word identification is a subcomponent and one of multiple strategies for getting to recognition. That's what I'm hearing you now say. I said all along, word identification is a strategy used to recognize a word. You see a word, you don't automatically know what it is, you don't recognize it, but it's in your lexicon. If you could just recognize it, you could connect it to the dictionary page in your head. So you need to use a strategy. So, so, so in a way, then what you're describing is word identification is that part of word recognition strategies that have to do with recognizing a word that's in your lexicon. Um, recognition is something we do automatically. So I think you're getting there. Word identification is a strategy used to recognize a word. Why? In a teaching environment, you do it differently. You teach the steps specifically to identify words. Step one, step two, step three. You do different things to develop students' ability to recognize words automatically. That is differently. That's a skill. The thing is, strategies become automatic. Once they become automatic, they are a skill. So you automatically begin to use context and word parts and morphology. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the conversation about how to recognize, again, when I encounter a word, it's either, it's, it's one of, of a series of conditions. One condition is, it's a word that I'd know if I could read it meaning that it's, that it's something I've already heard. I already know the word. I know the meaning of the word. I recognize it if I heard it. I just don't recognize it when I see it. So that's one set of conditions. And another condition is I've never heard this word. I, I've never, I don't know anything about this word. So in addition to the recognition issue, I've got the learning what it means issue, right? And then there's another one where I've heard the word but I, I don't understand what it means. So I, I've heard other people use the word so I could recognize it if I could decode it, so to speak, so that it's I got its sound, but I still wouldn't know what it means. So there's these different kinds of uncertainty layers associated with my interaction with a word, right? You're and, and, and I'm just having difficulty mapping the way that you guys put terminology to that, to the way that I would put terminology. You're straining, yeah. you're straining into the world of vocabulary knowledge, the different levels of word knowledge. You know, you can, you can use a word. There's different levels of word knowledge, and you just kind of alluded to it. 
you absolutely don't know that word, you haven't seen it at all, you have heard the word, you kind of know what it means, you can understand it, you see the word, but you know what it means, but you couldn't define it. And the, the, the deepest level, you know what it is, you can define it, you use it all the time. These are right. different levels. Word identification assumes at some level, you know the word and know what it means. Doesn't mean you know it at the deepest level, but you know kind of what that word means. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily going to the deepest level either. I was just talking about grossly different levels of interaction or uh, uncertainty surrounding an encounter with a word. And technically, to identify a word, it has to be in your lexicon. It has to be there. Well, already. technically, depending on the way you use the word recognition, recognize, identify a oh, yeah. word. Yeah, you have to. It has to be in here to identify. All right, are you ready to go to the next one? Sure. All right, you get to start, and then I'll do my shot first. Decoding. Decoding is using, is one type of word identification strategy. It is using the code, the letter codes, to sound out the word. Yeah, I agree with that. Agree with that. I, although I do have to, I the one thing I would add is, is that and I think this is an important distinction for all those that are attached to the word decoding is that I love that mug um, is that it's not the challenge of learning to read in English isn't so much decoding in the sense that it's technically used as a term in, for example, computer science. Um, it's more a case of disambiguating. And I mean, what I mean by that is, is that our code is not simply decodable. It's got a very confusing, messy correspondence between letters and sounds that can't be um, completely um, determined by the code itself. It takes an interpretive uh, third, a secondary layer of interpretation to map on the letters and sounds to get to some kind of word recognition through decoding. So decoding to me has always been a misleading term because there's no, you could say that their decoding existed in the days of the Greeks or the Romans, or to some degree in Italian and Spanish today, where there's a really simple correspondence. But today, in today, for example, when um, uh, we talk about a decoder in the software world, like a way a modem works, right? There's a really hard structural correspondence between the decoding system and the code itself that there's no ambiguity that it's trying to work out. There's errors that it might have error correction software to deal with and whatever, but it's there's nothing fundamentally confusing in the relationship between the elements and the code that the decoder has to deal with like there is in our system. So I think decoding is a loaded term that's got a lot of, um, it's been made uh, to seem more simplistic than it is to the disadvantage of the way we think about reading. I'm playing a, a drinking game every time you say disambiguate. Good for you. It's a very popular and powerful and important term when you're talking about getting through confusion to a coherent whole meaning. I love you. And I, I, I love that definition. We must disambiguate the difference between word identification, word recognition, and decoding. Yep, exactly, exactly, exactly. And they are used synonymously by people who don't understand literacy. That's why I was pressing the point, because I think that there's some confusion in the way those terms are used, yeah. And that's why we're doing this. Excellent, okay. Are we good with that one? Yep. Okay, here's one for you. Professional development. And we'll put it in the context of teaching. Yeah, I don't like the term as much as I like professional learning. And I, we've talked about this before, to, to, in my view, um, I think the most important part of uh, being a teacher, because we just grounded it that way, is that um, they are, before, before they can be good stewards of the healthy attentional participation of the learners that they are, quote, teaching, they need to be good uh, stewards of the health of their own learning. They need to be uh, having the kind of internal conversations and dialogues and first-person learning 
uh, journeying that you and I are doing in trying to explore and understand this rather than being rote robotic extensions of protocols of this is what this means and this is what I'm supposed to do now and so forth and so on. So for me, professional development is a way of inform or professional learning is a way of informing teachers about different dimensions that they should be considering while they're first person learning their way into teaching. I'm okay with the word learning. I use the word development because it assumes there are stages. And in the case of teaching, the development never ends. Now we've got teachers for three semesters, three semesters in student teaching. There's no way we can even complete a partial finished product. We get them ready to begin the journey. Teachers need continual professional development and this is research-based. Master teachers have knowledge in four areas. First is content knowledge, knowledge of what they're teaching. That's kind of tough for an elementary. They have to know a lot of stuff. Pedagogical knowledge. These are general teaching strategies. Pedagogical content knowledge, how to teach a specific area, how to teach reading, how to teach writing, how to teach math, how to teach science and knowledge of learners and learning, how human beings develop, how human beings best learn. To create master teachers, it is a simple thing. We must continue to promote learning, to promote more knowledge, gathering more knowledge in each of those four areas. And the master teachers I have encountered are learning up until the day they retire and beyond. Don't have any problem with that. All right. I mean, yeah. I mean the, again, I think there's so much that teachers can benefit from learning and nothing in particular is more important than them staying on the learning edge of, of their own practice and of their meeting the learners in the challenges that they're facilitating. So, important to have a background, but that background should never automate what they're doing. And we've had this conversation before. It's never, and, and people think if teachers just have these skills, they apply these skills and teaching is much more complex. So how should we address uh, professional learning or development in our schools? Is that going off? Is that another conversation? Because te um, teachers are the most important variable most significant variable in determining how much learning goes on. Yeah, I mean, it brings up uh, some of the interesting uh, thoughts that were triggered by the documents that you shared with me earlier from on the various research on teacher effectiveness and what have you. And uh, the, the, the tension that exists between a system that and this kind of veers also into a tangent, so I don't know that we want to spend that much time on it. But but basically, my understanding is is that things like No Child Left Behind and and the government kind of generalizing uh, its leadership of education and how certain things are done are based on decades of research into teaching practices that that suggested they needed to do that, that teachers weren't. Um, capable without some kind of a superstructure guiding them uh, to do that. And that's where all kinds of problems have come into the system between uh, what should teachers know and how much should we press them to know and perform in certain ways in order to be accountable to some larger system that's assessing them. And what's the downside of that in terms of disincenting their first person learning and their first person quality of participation when they feel so roboticized. And that um, is probably a subject for another conversation. Yeah, I think I think that's a whole big thing in itself. Because the government has not identified what's most effective. They've identified what's most profitable. All right, you get to choose. I, I, yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, <clears throat> dyslexia. Ah, uh, an inability to learn to read, which is of unknown origin. It impacts usually, depending on the researcher, three to 5% of the population. 
Yeah, I actually like that. Unfortunately, the general, because because it's become such a big thing politically and profitably, they, they push that 3 to 5%, which I kind of agree with, to t almost 15 to 20%, because there's a whole lot more uh, opportunity to intervene at that level. Um, I've had some pretty deep dive conversations with people like Shaywitz and others that are on the neuroscience side of trying to identify dyslexia. And they can't point to anything that's higher than the three to 5% that you're referring to um, that they can say for sure is innately neurobiologically structurally ordained as opposed to or as distinct from a consequence of early learning environment trajectory differences. In other words, how much dyslexia, what we call or think of dyslexia is learned and how much of dyslexia is innate couldn't be otherwise in the biostructural uh, development of a child is a big fuzzy. And that, unfortunately, um, it, because of our lack of um, criticality about those distinctions, and because so many people are having, so many kids are having difficulty with learning to read, it's become this uh, fuzzy deep end of the pool that uh, has become a rallying cry that's then also been fused with the whole phonics conversation. So the dyslexia thing is a big, messy, um, amorphous, multi-ordinal term. Well, the International Dyslexia Association presses a certain definition and they exist to sell product to make money. How much does it cost to get trained in Orton-Gillingham, a program that has no research based and it does not work, yet people do it. Shaywitz, well, yeah. Shaywitz is not a reading instructor in uh, reading expert. She's a she's a neurologist. She's a medical person, and she has her research where she takes one or two kids into the laboratory and they look at parts of their brain that do light up and don't light up. And Stephen Strauss says, "Okay, once you give a kid adequate instruction, the dyslexic." use that term in quote, whose part of the brain didn't light up, does light up. So it's not a brain-based disorder. However, students in that three to 5% tend to have trouble processing letter sounds, tend to have trouble processing phonics, but not always. Where Shaywitz in the International Dyslexia Association gets up to 20%, well, that's students who have trouble with spelling. Based on that, I have a mild form of dyslexia. I was a horrible speller growing up and I use the computer today. So they have defined dyslexia, not in a way that helps kids, but in a way that helps them make money. Yeah, I wouldn't quite be so dark about it. I think there's really generally good intentions, like we've talked about many times before, in where people are coming from. But I do agree that it has become financially convenient for both the, the International Dyslexia Association and all of the decoding dyslexia groups that have popped up around the country. But that, that what glues them together is a ferocity of passion about what, not wanting kids to get harmed by the sustained uh, you know, lack of success with reading and what it does to their lives. So I think they're coming from a good place. And it, like anything else, it gets all kinds of kind of predatory hijackers that jump on the bandwagon to try to monetize it. Um, that said, the other thing I would say is, is that I, I, from talks with people that are on the phonological, pure oral language side of neuroscience, there's a direct correspondence from their perspective between what's classically called dyslexia and neuro, obviously structural neurological issues in the brain that have to do with processing oral language. So that they're, they're, they see dyslexia as primarily a, a oral language problem that that barely shows up in oral language, but shows up greater in written language because it's a virtual overlay that depends on the oral language engine. But I think we're fair with where we left it. I, I think we are as well. You know, the idea of good intentions, there's intention and then there's impact. I agree that some people within the dyslexia movement that I know that's a generalization have good intent. Uh, but listen, you could download my videos for free or you could pay $4,000 for an Orton-Gillingham training. 
When you're charging that much, you are a money-making uh, organization, not a helping kids organization. So I just want to vomit in my mouth when I hear these groups saying they're there to help kids. Pay me $1,500 letters. Pay me four to $5,000, Orton Gillingham. All right. Yeah, look, look, I've got a few hundred videos that are all free and I've never charged for it too. So, you know, yeah, I get that. All right. Are you ready for a new word? Yep. Balanced literacy. I'm smiling because I'm watching your eyeballs go back and forth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those terms. It's it's multi-ordinal. It can mean lots of things. To me, what it means is, is that um, it's a on-ramp to becoming uh, literacy proficient that it, that's multi-ordinal, meaning that it's not dependent on any one particular strategy, but that it's using a balanced, uh, a number of different strategies in concert to support the process of learning to become, to come up to speed and be proficient in the flow of uh, literacy. Balanced literacy, there's a balance between pure skills and meaning-based experiences. And you go back and forth on the continuum. Some people need more skills. Some people need less. But there's a balance between skills and authentic reading and writing activities. Everyone believes in phonics instruction. It is just how much, when, where. Yeah, I think, you know, that also came up in my research, in my reading of some of the things that you sent me, is that um, that's a... I would say it's a new phenomena, but in the history of the of the conflict between the code based and whole word or whole, what became whole language based, um, there, there's been a, a movement from the whole language folks towards phonics in a way there hasn't been a movement from the phonics folks towards whole language. Or putting it another way and more consistent with what you put, the way that you just described, there's always this tension between, well, in order to get the meaning, I have to recognize the word. And in order to recognize the word, it's really helpful to be tracking in the flow of a meaning that will help inform the process of recognizing the word. So there's this back and forth going on between the whole and the part and the part and the whole. And the phonics people have been, it's pretty bottoms up only from the phonics side and the whole language have been, well, you know, like many of the arguments that the papers you put, uh, were pushing back on about the, the, as negatives to the whole language movement was this notion that by just structuring the text around just uh, highly readable words and being really uh, personally engaging and so forth and so on, that kids would be gravitating to the meaning and they would somehow imbibe uh, unconsciously pick up all the skills that are necessary to recognize unfamiliar words. Like there's this tension between the two and balanced literacy. It has become a kind of um, uh, phrase for, um, you know, trying to integrate those two in a way that the two camps in the past didn't. And one of the things that the, the code based or the, the skills based do is they'll pull a term like balanced literacy They'll misidentify it, misuse it, and then they'll demonize the word. And balanced literacy is one of those. Most people that I hear demonizing balanced literacy have no idea what it means. There's a balance between skills instruction and using those skills in authentic reading and writing contexts. So this idea of uh, this camp versus that camp Whole language has always believed, and by by the way, whole language has continued to evolve. Everything evolves. But, but those are kind of a contradictory statement, always believed and continued to evolve. I mean, that the continuing to evolve has become more embracing of what's now considered balanced literacy in terms of being more inclusive of phonics than, than my understanding. And from what I read in the things that you sent me, the understanding of people that study this space has been that they've been more at loggerheads uh, in the past than they are now. And that that's largely in part because of the shift from whole word to whole language to meaning making. Whole language has always included phonics instruction. 
whole word is that stuff back in the 60s that you and I, I grew up with. It's the Dick and Jane that didn't include any phonics. The yep. whole, whole language is teaching phonics in a meaning-based context to the greatest extent. Right, but but it's, it, is it not an adaptation that grew out of that polarity that was whole word, became whole language, and became inclusive of phonics over time? No, they both have the word whole in them, but that's where the that's where the similarities end. Hmm. Okay. That's not, that's 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 news from what I read that there wasn't more continuity in that. But that's not a big deal one way or the other. In any event, we're talking about in the past 50 or 60 years, this pendulum switch between being kind of meaning centric and whole centric to being part and, you know, uh, bottoms up with the code. That's yep. where the tensions lie, which go all the way back to our beginning conversation about identification and recognition that, you know, ultimately what we're talking about is the how those two different tracks relate to uh, informing the process of recognizing words. There's been three big step backs in the last 60 years. There was the back to the basics movement in the 80s. There was the No Child Left Behind Reading First Initiative movement of the early aughts. And now there's the science of reading movement, all that have caused us to move backwards in our ability to help children learn to read. Yeah, and because of the way that you guys have failed to learn together, and I think that's all parties have to be are complicit in that. Um, you know, their perspective is the exact mirror opposite of the, what you just described, which is to say that the only reason that they've become so hard and religious and dogmatic about pushing the code up, you know, point of view, the decoding centric, uh, code centric view of reading instruction is the failures of all other approaches, right? And so you discount their research, they discount your research, you know, and there's this finger pointing rather than learning together which presumably balanced literacy is an attempt to do, right? Balanced literacy is pretty much what, what whole language is or has evolved to, I, I would say. Now, I know you're going to jump. Which is, why, which, which is why the decoding folks don't want anything to do with it. Because they don't know what it is. Uh, you mentioned something that I thought was good. Uh, you and I having this conversation is really important. I wish we disagreed on more, but it's the ability, the inability to listen and to hear where people are coming from. And I've tried to engage people online and in other places. I've tried to engage people at my university, but there's this tendency to want to not communicate with someone who has a different idea than you. And just in the months that we've been having these conversations, you know, I think differently about some things. I've had to strengthen my view on other things. It's the importance of listening to people who disagree with you without calling them names or without the straw person argument where you say, where you misidentify balanced literacy. Right. Well, that has to do with it to some degree in remembering that we are good. There are Underneath all this, yes, there's a predatory overlay to the whole decoding dyslexia and IDA and reading for all of that stuff. There's a, just like there is over anything that becomes instantiated into the infrastructure of education. There's a predatory, you know, monetization that's going to swoop in to try to make the best of it. And that's going to reinforce it in ways that are ant antithetical to actual learning. And the same would be true if, if your side was dominant right now. There'd be people rushing to make products that do this that would be kind of insular and attacking those that didn't. And that's an unfortunate thing. But underneath it all, I really believe that um, all the camps, there's this shared thing that they of love and care for children and the suffering children go through because of their difficulty with reading. And that that's what motivates everybody. And it's a really unfortunate, I think, that we can't use that as a basis for having a dialogue. And, and, and I agree with you. Unfortunately, um, once people 
for psychological reasons or for income reasons, get associated with a particular way to do something, um, then it becomes very difficult for them to back off from it because it means that or it implies that they were wrong, which hurts their reputation, potentially hurts their income. It's what I call paradigm inertia. Um, and it's a huge problem in all over the world in every dimension and particularly here. But I think there's a... Um, I think there's a there's a great opportunity that we're just scratching the surface of you and I, right? Of getting to, you know, what's the underlying core challenge, and how can we think differently about that in a way that integrates the best of everybody's thinking instead of having to stay true to something for ideological, or economic, or psychological reasons. I mean, there's just too much at stake. And. You know, when the various camps says research says this and research says that, understanding what research and educational research is, is important. There is no single study that proves anything in the social sciences. That's not how science works. And when someone says research shows this, I say, well, show me the research so I can analyze it. It proves this is effective for this person used in this way for that level. You know, you there's no single study. You have to look at the wide variety. Now, when I look at the science of reading, there show the, the the claim is that there's this reading crisis and we've gone through this before. Uh and again, we want to say well show us some valid data. Reading scores are about the same as they always have been. But, which, by the way, is what what make, which makes makes it the crisis for me. It's not that there's some, you know, worsening. It's that it's always been worse than it should be. That's the crisis. We That's where always, we differ on the term. We can yeah. always do better, but when you compare us to other countries, we we stack up rather well. When you compare like populations, which is very hard to do, by the way, it's very hard to do. I but, yeah, I think the pearl stuff is. It's very hard to find like populations. But when you look at people like Emily Hanford, who misidentify the crisis, but even if there were a crisis, she has identified the problem and the solution. If there were a crisis, she has said, oh, it's because of phonics. So that is not scientific thinking to use I-thinkisms and anecdotal evidence to identify a problem and a solution. Yep. Look, I like like I I have uh, pushed back hard on Hannaford, right? And I uh, so I disagree. I disagree with. I I again I appreciate the spirit of what she's trying to do, just like I do all of the parents and that join up in the decoding dyslexia groups or the various online groups that are out there championing reading and uh, instructional reform, et cetera. Um, I think they're coming from a good place, but um, the, it, to me, it comes back to the mental models and the mental, mo the mental model that you all share is the one that ultimately I want to challenge, which is that at the, at the point of interaction between a reader and a word that they're trying to recognize, they're trying to identify to use your term, right? Um, that the word is, is static and can't help them. And that's what we'll, we'll get to when, you know, another episode down the road. Right. We want to help children develop their full literacy potential. I agree that many, probably most, do have good intent. But when I look at someone like Emily Hanford, I say, what is her intent? Is it to make her career and make money? Why does she not involve real literacy experts why doesn't she read some research because the experts that she does involve are so adamant against including you like i told you yep. i once had the secretary of education tell the assistant secretary of education to tell me not to talk to people like allington and otherwise or they would you know like like i i i've been threatened myself by powers that are for crossing the line from the uh code centric part to the whole language part in my own inquiries so, you know, I get the pressure that somebody like that's under and the fact that um, from their perspective, the preponderance of science says we've got to teach, you know, and again, it comes down to the population's not a monolith. 
It's not like that every kid's got the same brain with the same level of readiness, with the same vocabulary, with the same, you know, uh, phonemic differentiation skills, implicit skills, with the same uh, word attack or recognition skills, with, with the same uh, knowledge of the world uh, as a back. All these kids are different. So it's when you look at the kids that are struggling the most and what is it they're weak at and given the the, the majority of the population that is struggling and inside that population, the majority of those that have particular kinds of weaknesses, what instructional strategy will work with that? And it's big generalizations thrown on big generalizations. That's exactly what technology can change in the future. You're starting to sound like a balanced literacy instructor because one size of instruction does not fit all. And that's the problem with the Hanfords of the world that want to have one type of instruction for all kids. All right. Yeah, well, again, yeah I think the problem's at a different place, but that's another another day. Another, that is another. Enough, yeah? I think it's your turn for a word. Is it? Yep. I did balanced literacy, and that led to... Well, maybe we should talk um, a bit about... Uh orthography. What is orthography? Orthography is using the, the arrangement of letters to identify a word. And as you pointed out, and I agree, the English language is not very predictable. There are more predictable language. But the human brain is a pattern recognition thing. It learns to recognize patterns. That's how it has evolved and survived. Orthography, how would you define it? Orthography is a broad umbrella term that talks about the correspondence between letters, sounds, and spelling patterns, and how they combine to, um, in the in this case, the in, in a particular written language. In our case, the English orthography, obviously, the English language. So it's it's a system of relations between uh, letters, sounds, patterns. And spell and, and spelling patterns as a whole, yeah. And um, whereas I agree that the human brain evolved to become a great pattern recognition system, and it, it does that in nature in many different ways. Um, the kind of patterns that are in this are entirely different than anything that exists in nature. And so, um, learning to read via our orthography is a kind of challenge that no human being in the entire history of the planet, in the entire evolutionary history of humanity ever did, but except for a few hundred years ago, began a few hundred years ago. So. Okay. Don't agree with all of that, but good. I agree with some of that. All right. Uh, you have your choice. You can do scientifically based reading instruction or you can do systematic phonics instruction. Scientifically based reading research, I'm sorry, or systematic phonics instruction. Which one would you like to chew on? Doesn't matter. You pick one. It's your okay. turn, isn't it? All isn't right. It? Do no, no, I picked the last. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Let's do systematic phonics instruction because that's what we've been talking about. Systematic phonics instruction. Well, I have to start by saying I disagree with that. <laughs> But um, it has to do with training um, reflexive uh, patterns of response to the recognition of phonical patterns in the uh, code. Um, so the uh, bizarre rules of phonics, learning to recognize which of the letters are to be interpreted through these bizarre rules to get to the right sound pattern as a basis of word recognition. And I would define it as, and, and I agree with you, there's no defined scope and sequence of letters and letter patterns that you build up to get you to a finished reading product. Systematic phonics instruction is learning to put letters to sounds. That's what phonics is. Systematic means there's some system, some way of organizing when you teach and what you teach and when students master and what they master. There's a system in place. That's how I would define systematic phonics. Instruction. Which implies that there's a systematic relationship between letters and sounds, and there's not. There is not. But there are some basics. 
Well, there, there, there are systematic relationships between letters and sounds that can be arrived at through a highly abstract conceptual uh, intellectual overview, but there's not one that can be uh, intuitively grasped by a struggling reader or beginning reader. So this is what it would look like in kindergarten and first grade. I would need to teach the letter sounds. I would use some system to record when I taught the 27 letters and their letter sounds. And I would use another system to record when students have mastered that systematic. We need to teach the letter sounds, whether we agree with them or not. Yeah, but that's where the problem comes in, right? I mean, when you say teach the letter sounds, it's it's not... This is one of the things that we didn't talk about, the alphabetic principle, which would be, let's say that's the next term. If it's okay with you, let's bleed right from here into the alphabetic okay. principle. Because a lot of phonics instruction kind of implies the alphabetic principle or that there is such a thing as an alphabetic principle. Now, on one level, you could say, yeah, there's a correspondence between letters and sounds, and that's the principle to get. That's fine. That is not, I don't have a problem with that. But the idea that letters have a... Uh, simple relationship to sounds is itself um, crazy making to kids, in my view, right? Because the majority of time, if you take the um, alphabet uh, letter name sound, you teach that, or you take the common sound, the most common sound, and you teach that, in the 500 most commonly used words of kindergarten, those two default strategies trying to trying to uh, um, assign a letter name or common sound to a letter will be wrong half the time in in the most common words used in in kindergarten vocabulary so the, the the point is is that those 26 letters 27 letters if you want to, if you want to put it that way um, correspond to the 44 sounds of English in 120 ways even in kindergarten language we all agree that it's not logical, but we must teach these basic letter sounds as a basis. There's 44 phonemes in the English language, 27 letters, there were 18 short. Absolutely, everyone agrees with that. Does that mean we don't teach letter sounds? And by the way, we teach sight words as well, a word that you recognize automatically. Those are the 100 most frequent or dolch or zeno or whatever. We use the same thing to document when they're introduced and when they're mastered. But are you saying then, since they're not uh, 100% uh, reliable, that we shouldn't teach letter sounds? I don't think you're saying that. Or letter patterns? No, 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 no. But I would teach, I would help kids understand that there's more to the way a letter can sound than these simple letter sounds we teach them because they set them up for being wrong in ways they can't understand later. So by teaching them a simple set of letter sounds in the hopes that we're going to bootstrap them, right? And then they encounter numerous words in which those those sounds that they've been taught to associate with letters no longer work in the words they encounter. It causes them to be wrong in ways they can't understand why they're wrong which sabotages the process. So I think the way we teach letter sounds is wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't teach letter sounds. I think we should teach them differently. And that's why we teach students to recognize words using three cueing systems. So they're not relying just on letter patterns, but syntax and semantics as well. Which, which you're doing because they can't rely on letter patterns. Well, not 100%. But we we must teach letters. Again, again, if kids could look at a word and it was intuitively decodable, meaning that they could just look at the letters and boom, word popped into their mind. The sound of the word was there. It was immediately there. Then we wouldn't be trying to teach them the, all these extraneous ways to get to word recognition. Uh, word identification, you mean, to identify a word. There's a difference. All right. You wanted to do go with the alphabetic principle? We kind of just talked about that. I I I I, uh, I saw that referenced in your documents. I pushed back on people throughout the Children of the Code days, whenever people would use that. In that, the alphabetic principle is a kind of uh, uh, no-brainer, uh, necessary but insufficient 
uh, baby step along the process that it doesn't it gets a lot more uh, attention and suggestion of import than it has because the problem isn't that there's a principle to get that letters correspond to sound. I think every little kid in the world gets that pretty easily. It's the complexity of the relationship between letters and sounds where the problem is. So the alphabetic principle is just a misleading uh, term in the sequence of importances on the learning to read process to me. And I think I'm, I'm part way there with you. You know, as I understand the alphabetic principle as applied to a preschool, kindergarten, first grade, this is the alphabet. These are symbols. Symbols have sounds. Their sounds aren't always reliable, but these are right. sounds. But, yeah. I mean, some of, some of the research actually suggests that once kids get the alphabetic principle, like that's the ball game. That's the big step, you know? And to me, that's like, no. No, no, that's 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 the that's a really simple, obvious, uh, no-brainer first baby step. Yep. It's the correspondence between letters and sounds where the bog is. All right. Uh, the next word, I you know, I wonder if we shouldn't wrap it up here. I think we should wrap it up. I think we've done enough for 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 this uh, reconnect, and we've got a, a set of terms that we can identify an index so people can dive into the them as individuals, etc. And, and we can think about this more in, uh, intentionally between now and the next time and figure out what are the other terms that we haven't talked about and let's make a list together and kind of negotiate it and then be systematic. Very <laughs> good. With it next time. All right. For our listeners out there, this has been another nine, no, another hour and 15 minutes of the Dave and Andy conversation.